0: K-W-V-A. K-W-V-A.
1: Here at KWVA, one channel isn't always enough. That's why we have KWVA2. KWVA2 is an online-only stream designed to provide you with even more exciting content, including more live sports. To access the stream and view a schedule, visit our website at kwva.uoregon.edu.
2: UNICEF works across 190 countries and territories to reach the children and young people who are most at risk and most in need. As conflict escalates in Ukraine, UNICEF is on the ground providing safe water, emergency supplies and social services to children and their families. Learn more at unicef.org
1: forward slash Ukraine forward slash en. Hey, this is Joey McMurray, broadcaster for the Oregon Sports Network and former KWVA sports director. But he's wearing Adidas pants. You can't do that.
0: And you're listening to QuackSmack. I can't hear anything.
1: Stigley, what hit me was when then when Daylight Savings Time started and or when Daylight Savings Time ended, excuse me, we fell back and then I started seeing the sunset at 430 and I was just. Yeah, like, Yeah, that never
2: feels right. No, it never it, feels it's right. just
1: automatically wrong every time i'm like i will take the sun rising later the sun should never be setting before 5 p.m it's just in whatever we have to do to the time zone i don't care sun sets after five no matter what
2: yeah exactly and i I don't know about you lily but like i i never was i was born raised in portland and i I never really thought much about like the whole like seasonal oppression you feel sad the winter thing i was like i i'm from here it's fine then i moved to hawaii for three years moved back and i was like trust me i'm fine like i'm from here that first winter when it's just dark, like what feels like 90% of the day hits you like a sack of bricks. Do you have any experience with that at all?
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I've only l- ever lived mm. in Oregon, okay, uh, okay. but I'm always just super tar- tired all winter long.
2: <laughs> you you want to hibernate. Just like yeah. <laughs> It feels like hibernation <laughs> season. Um, well, we're going to talk Oregon football a lot today. We're going to talk Oregon football. Now, normally we have our soccer segment the second segment there we are done with soccer season so wrapped up there we'll transition we'll talk some Oregon men's basketball and then we'll wrap up as always with our Pac-12 football roundup and kind of just jump around the Pac-12 talk some playoff rankings well um not on the outline at all but we were talking a little bit before we have to talk Jimbo Fisher that's kind of where I want to start um Jimbo Fisher let go from Texas A&M um the buyout's insane. Um 76 million dollars, which is again the the highest recorded buyout in college football history. Um also he was fired after winning by 40 against Mississippi State, which was another wrinkle. Um I don't know. It just it feels like one of the grander
1: failures we've seen among major college football hires. What do you think, Evan? I mean, to me Jimbo was never like if I'm a athletic director which i'm not but if i were an that <laughs> but I, I would were. i would not have paid jimbo fisher 70 million dollars over the last six years period as his base salary regardless of the buyout yeah he's coming from florida state he's had a lot of great seasons at florida state if you're 2018 a and m you're sitting there going we've got a guy who's going to be great at florida state yeah 83 wins 23 losses great stats didn't have the best season in 17 but i think he kind of knew that he was moving on a little bit yeah So, I get the idea of, okay, we're going to bring him, we're going to pull him out. We've managed to get this guy out of Florida State, won a national championship game, three BCS games in the last six years coming off of that, multiple 10-win seasons coming. I I get the hype around him at the time. That contract was so overinflated. It must have been that that was the only way that they could get him out of Florida State. Yeah. But also, to me, Florida State was never... Florida State always – the ACC was not a particularly strong conference at the time. Florida State had a Heisman, Heisman quarterback in Jameis Winston in the years that they performed above, like, 9 wins, 10-win seasons. To me, Jimbo Fisher was never the reason the Florida State was good. He's a fine coach, but he, A, he came into that program when they were doing well. Be, so he never really had to rebuild texas a&m they were doing fine when he not really like mediocre when he came Very in he mediocre, actually he's yeah. gonna have to rebuild that program to some extent jimbo fisher is not going to change your program that was always the read i had on him if he, if you have a good program he will keep it good if you have a mediocre program it's not going to change so to me he's a decent coach but i'm not expecting him to build anything that texas a&m already wasn't
2: yeah, yeah, I get that, and I'll, I, I definitely put him in that category of good coach, great recruiter. Where like I think he's proven pretty repeatedly that he knows how to bring in top end talent to his programs. Um, obviously, there's the the benefit of money; we don't have to get into all of that. But like he he's a good recruiter, and he knows how to bring in talent. Also, I think that there's a long list of good coaches that look great when they have elite quarterbacks. And, like, Jameis Winston, obviously, is like kind of a joke now, kind of a meme among NFL quarterbacks. But, like, in college, he was the real deal. A Heisman winner. I mean, they had, a, I think, a 28-game win streak with him. It was insane what they did together at Florida State. Um, so never a bad c- coach. I just think he's a fine coach. I also think that it's the Nick Saban effect where everyone in the SEC West kind of looks terrible all the time because even a decent SEC West team, looks miserable in comparison to alabama (laughs) and you'll get like you know the one year lsu wonder here the one year a&m wonder here but really it's just alabama and so i think that alabama i think nick saban has contributed to more coaches being fired than maybe any other coach in the country Uh, lily i'll kick it to you for the oregon perspective because you knew you knew this was going to happen whenever a major program opens the next question is who they're going to hire and we've heard a lot of names, um, including Dan Campbell from the Detroit Lions. Not sure how often head NFL coaches come to SEC West head coach jobs, but it is what it is. Um, I think we can put that one to bed. But the next name you knew was going to come up was da- uh, Dan Lanning. Um, and, and not the only coaches mentioned. Um, Kansas head coaches mentioned. Uh, even, even Jonathan Smith, Kalen DeBoer. Lots of head coaches mentioned. But year two of Dan Lanning, and this is year two of coaching rumors for Dan Lanning. Last year it was Auburn, and he pretty – Aggressively denied that. I have my own feelings about it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, Lily, on if you're an Oregon fan, what your level of concern should be, maybe not just with Texas A&M, but for Dan Lanning being poached.
0: Ooh, I think I'm not too concerned right now, uh, given the rumors last year, and yeah, like you said, how quickly he shut the rumors down last year. I feel like, I feel like Dan Lanning really enjoys his position uh, at at Oregon right now. And I also feel like I believe he said last year with the coaching rumors he talked about his family and how he doesn't want to keep moving his family around. And I think that will be a big factor. But as Oregon fans are used to, you know, (laughs) having that fear of coaching rumors and coaches coming, getting hired, doing okay or better than okay and then leaving for something better and using uh Oregon as a stepping stone uh and so I understand the concern but I don't think at this point in time year two with Dan Lanning as head coach I don't see that happening right now
2: I agree I my my take on it is there's just no chance he goes to a this year I also think that like there will com- come a time when Dan Lanning leaves I think that I just don't think that if you are that good at Oregon, that you will not eventually be poached somewhere else, especially someone who doesn't necessarily have ties to Oregon, like it's not like his family's from here. I, I could see if you told me in five years Daniel gets poached, told me four years he gets poached, I would believe it. Like it's going to happen eventually if he's good, you know, if he continues to do what everything we've seen from the first two years. I mean, this is year two of a first-time head coach, and they are serious national contender, con- national title contenders, heading down the stretch of the, hom- the home stretch of the season. I think there's a 0% chance he leaves this year, especially because of what you said, Lily. He's been pretty emphatic about how much he wants his family to stay here. They've had to move like a bazillion times. You know, the coaching grind is insane. So his his kids have moved a ton. Also, and I do want y'all's input on this, like, I'm not entirely sure that Texas A&M is that much of a better job than Oregon there's the money factor, which is like, okay, oil money hits different. They have more resources down in Texas. I am very aware of the amount of money they have down in Texas. But, again, if you move to Texas A&M, you go to a program that has national title aspirations, and they expect national titles while also being in the same division as LSU and Alabama and being in the same conference as Georgia. And I think that the the obstacles to national title contention are so much high, higher at Texas A&M compared to Oregon, even with Oregon going to the Big 10, I think you are walking into a hornet's nest of they expect you to win while also the road to victory is straight uphill. Gavin, if you could just compare and contrast, if you are a coach, obviously the money factor leans Texas A&M. Every other factor for me leans Oregon is
1: the better job. Even the money factor. I mean, to me, the big 3 in terms of college football money is Oregon is Oregon, Bama and Texas A&M. And to me, if you want to say, oh, A&M's got slightly oil money does hit different. If you want to say, okay, Texas A&M's got the money. I don't see anything else that Texas A&M has. Oregon is built better. Oregon um, Oregon is built better as a program. They've got the Nike money coming. So it's not like they're short on resources in any means. And to me, they've, They've got the better fan. To me, Texas A&M's fan base is a little closer to USC's in terms of the, the boosters will just toss you out. I mean, come on. Yeah. The fact that we're even discussing they bought out Fisher. <laughs> the boosters bought out Fisher. This was, the, the $76 conversation, million. Dollars. This was not even – if we had talked about this last year, because Fisher didn't have a great year last year, people – this was mentioned there said there's no way because there's no way they're going to be able to buy him out because they're just not going to be able to afford it and they're stuck with him. To me, that's the thing with – that is that the boosters are so perturbed by him not having effectively a 500 record for two years that they're willing to spend 75 million dollars just to get him gone much less paying for new coach much less his staff buyouts much less hiring a new staff to me that is not an environment that i would want to coach in and plus we've talked about oregon's been used as a stepping stone by a bunch of different coaches recently that fan base is ready force Oregon's fan base is ready for somebody to come in and say, this is where I'm going to be for a while. Dan Lanning has kind of already said that this is where he wants to be for a while. I th- Realistically, I think the only – Alabama, maybe Georgia, those are the only two jobs. Dan Lanning does not seem like he's going to the NFL – period. He doesn't seem like an NFL. he wants to go to the NFL. To me, Alabama-Georgia, those are the only two jobs that I could see him leaving Oregon for, and frankly, by the way that he's been building up this program and by the way that he's building up this culture, I'm not sure if five, seven years down the line when those jobs open, we're even discussing this because we're not even sure that Oregon's that much of a step down from those two programs. So to me, I don't see Lanning leaving anytime soon, and I really don't see a and as a better job in any function aside from maybe this coaching salary.
2: Yeah, the, the salary is one thing. But I like to your point, I think that you are, again, walking into a hornet's nest if you're the head coach of Texas a and I think that 10 Landing is being completely and fully embraced by the entire state of Oregon right now. And I think that that is an undervalued a- asset of working here is that people like you and that you kind of have a good you know day-to-day life versus Texas a m where they literally presented Jimbo Fisher with a plaque saying he was a national champion. They just left the date blank. At his hiring. The expectation is you will win national titles at Texas A&M. However, I'm not entirely sure that's going to happen in today's college football. Um, (coughs) Weird side note was that, again, a m blew the wheels off Mississippi State, and then Jimbo got fired. Reporting is that the decision was made last Thursday. They just wanted to wait until after the game to do so. Um, And then Mississippi State fired Zach Arnett, and I saw a great tweet. was, I'm not entirely sure the last time both coaches were fired after a game, (laughs) midseason. But... Just not a great game for either program all around. Enough Jimbo Fisher talk. Let's talk about the game a little closer to home. USC visited Oregon for the first time since 2015, which was something I didn't realize. Because of the quirks the packed up schedule, they had missed a year. And then USC was scheduled to come in 2020, and that was due to COVID. And then uh, Oregon was at you. It's one of those quirks that they had not played here in darn near a decade Um Oregon pulls it out, 36-27. Oregon advances to 9-1. USC falls to 7-4. USC was unranked coming in. Oregon stays at number 6 in the AP poll. Obviously, we're still waiting for the the college football playoff rankings. It was a weird game. It felt like a weird game. The numbers for Knicks are incredible. We'll talk about him for a second. Caleb Williams had his normal level of magic, but it was a little disjointed. There were some fumbles in the USC side. There were a lot of penalties in the Oregon side. Uh, My favorite question to ask after a game is, what's the headline of the game, and I think that cause every game is a different story. It's bigger than the, than just the score. For me, it was almost kind of a survive and advance game, where I was in the field at the end of the game, and I was just watching USC. Felt like they were starting to mount that comeback, and it's like, okay, like this is getting spicy. And then the two point conversion fails, and the onside fails, and Oregon kind of holds it out. It felt closer than maybe the final score indicated. Like a nine point victory, it felt a little closer than that. For me, this was almost a survive and advance game against a team whose record isn't great, but obviously it's a ton of talent. You, you never really know when you're going against USC. Obviously, the defense isn't great, but they know how to throw haymakers when they need to do, but very much to survive an advanced game. Gavin, kind of what was your main takeaway, your main headline,
1: your main, like, this was the story of the game for me? I mean, I knew coming into this that there was very little to be gained by playing USC aside from just winning the game. Like, we talk about surviving in advance. To me, unless they did something similar to what Notre Dame's defense did against Caleb Williams, which is absolutely lock him down, sack him six times, pick him off twice, and just demolish him in every facet, which was unlikely. I feel like there wasn't that much points to be gained versus winning them by nine, beating them by 20, beating them by 25. There really wasn't much to be gained, especially because of the firing of Alex Grinch. Um, To me... It was very much a surviving advanced game. And the headline for me was the off ev- everybody did their jobs. That was the main takeaway for me. Everybody did their jobs. And if you want a headline, this is Oregon's B that was Oregon's B game. And that's they fair. took down a three loss team and they like fifteen yards and penalties. Every t- any time a penalty yardage gets into triple digits, that's a problem. Yeah. And this was not like from an Oregon's, this was not Oregon's best game. This was probably one of Oregon's worst games this season. And they still scored 36 points. Bo Nix still put up incredible numbers. They still held the Raising Heisman champion to only one passing touchdown, 27 points. That's it. And they were able to stop that comeback, which is important because they haven't really been in those situations where they've had to worry about actually. Let's be real. Nix, Bo Nix has played in three fourth quarter games this year. Yeah, that's about it. So. At the very least, I'm excited that they actually got to test fourth-quarter mentality.
2: That's that's very fair. It is weird that versus Cal, I also felt like they kind of played a B-plus game where it didn't feel quite sharp, and they won by 44. And then against USC, it's like, man, it's a B-plus game, and they just beat the Iranian Heisman winner and dropped 36 and won by 9. Again, we really are splitting hairs, but I think that's kind of the standard that Oregon's at. Lily, kind of what was your biggest takeaway as far as, like, this is what I expected, this is what I saw. What was your biggest headline from the game?
0: Uh, I'd agree that my biggest headline is Oregon Oregon survives despite a late game, you know, kind yeah. of crumble. But the other headline I would say is was the quarterback battle that Bonix, you know, had another big performance, four touchdowns, and that was against the reigning Heisman champion who it m- most people are expecting to be the number one overall pick in the NFL draft.
2: Yeah. Uh, Caleb Williams, the numbers weren't necessarily great for him. 19 for 34 for 291 in the touchdown. So relatively normal numbers for him. However, there were some highlights of his where he just looks like he's running in circles around the defense. Like that's kind of what you expect with him. He's obviously a great athlete. He's got great elusiveness. Um, I, I did, Think the, the pass rush played well against him. I do want to talk about Bo Nix uh, 23 for 31, 412 passing yards, four touchdowns. Um, chipped in just a single rush for five yards. Another, you know, four touchdown game for him. He's moved into the odd Don Heisman favorite, which is big news. We'll kind of get there. But I think that my opinion of, of Bo Nix has changed this year. I really thought he was kind of in that category of. Hyper experienced quarterback who knows how to win games and doesn't really make mistakes. That was kind of my vibe from him last year where it's like, OK, he knows how to get the team the right play. He'll do the right thing. Almost like a game manager role where it's like you, you trust him to do the right thing. And I think even coming into this year, I was kind of thinking like he's going to do the right thing. And instead, over the past few weeks, especially, I think he's taken his game up on another level where he has just excelled. And now, again, moving into the Heisman favorite, which is not where I thought he was going to be, to be quite honest with you. like I knew he'd be in the conversation. But if you told me there's two weeks left in the season, Bo Nix is the odds on Heisman favorite, I would have been stunned, especially coming out of that Washington game. I guess I'll start with you, Lily. How has your view of Nick's change, and where do you think he is in relation to, like, Is he the number one college football quarterback in the nation? Because obviously we know, I think we can all pretty safely say, Williams is going one, Drake May will probably go two. Like, those guys are that good at the professional level. They're projected to be that good. As far as just like, you need to win a game tomorrow. How high is he going off that draft board?
0: I don't know. I would think he would be pretty high in the draft board. I think with Bo Nix, I mean, obviously Caleb Williams is, I mean, what can you say about Caleb Williams? He's just... he's He's crazy he's that guy um but Bo Nix is you can make an argument that he's just made to be a really he was made to be a really good college quarterback and and like you said he just has that experience and I think that's showed up the past couple seasons at Oregon and he's just done a really good job to to lead this team and stay consistent and that's how it was last year and it's just like as long as he you know knock on wood as long as he stays healthy the ducks <laughs> the ducks are in in good hands and yeah I'm, I would say that I'm also surprised about the Heisman odds because I know that bonix is is that good but it just feels like he doesn't get as much hype from the media especially with the the level uh, the high level of playoff quarterbacks just within the Pac-12.
1: I mean, to rank him as the number one quarterback in the country, you have to kind of define the criteria there. I think that realistically, he has the lowest floor of any quarterback on the draft board. I think he's the most consistent pick on the draft board. I think if you get him – even if you get him below the 15th pick in the draft, he's an absolute steal. I think that realistically, if you're looking at, okay, Michael Penix, you're looking at Caleb Williams, you're looking at Drake May – all of those guys, they could play like they did in college. They could also play like Bryce Young's playing in the NFL and be out of the league in three years. He, they could, they could, they could. <laughs> Like, realistically, I mean, I've, I can say a lot of things about Caleb Williams. I have said a lot of things about Caleb Williams. I think he's going to be a giant flop in the NFL, realistically. Yeah. I think he, I, he is discount Mahomes. Wow. Okay. Okay. That is, that is what I – I, Caleb <laughs> Williams is only as good as he is because the entire USC offense is designed around him running around in the backfield for 27 seconds, and eventually <laughs> the coverage <laughs> finds a hole, and he's able to throw it downfield 40 yards. If you try to put him in the pocket and make him throw from the pocket, he just gets eaten alive. If he can't run around in the backfield, he gets eaten alive. You saw it in the Pac-12 championship game against Utah last year. In the first quarter, that's what I thought – the first quarter of this game is what I was thought the entire game was going to look like, which was him not quite able to get away and immediately getting eaten alive three sacks in the first quarter, if I'm not mistaken, or the third one was early in the second. To me – and then Drake May. Drake May is underdeveloped right now. I think he needs a couple more – the same way when people saying Michael Penix last year should have gone in the draft. No. Drake yeah. May needs at least a year and a half – And even if he spends another year in college, I still don't think he's ready to be a day-one starter. I think he needs time. He right now is a round-two pick to me. I think that he's – Jordan Love isn't a great example because Jordan Love didn't exactly work out as well as everybody thought he was going to. But having that – what they used to do and have that guy sit on the bench for a year, learn from a more experienced quarterback, then step into that role. That's where I see Drake May right now. From Bo Nix's perspective, do I want him starting day-one as an NFL quarterback? Maybe not. But I feel like of all the people, we talk about what his game stepped up. To me, he's still that hyper-experienced quarterback who can win games when he needs to and make those adjustments at the line. But and he doesn't make mistakes. That's the same logic we had last year. It's just that he is making adjustments at the line that you don't expect from him. He makes so few mistakes that it's almost like you're taking out of okay, he's not just a regular game strong game manager quarterback. He's managing a game in ways that you don't expect from a college quarterback at all. And he's had less experience than Penix because Penix is this is technically his sixth year because of the way that. The redshirting worked and his injury worked. To me, Bo Nix is the most – he's the most consistent quarterback in the country. He's the most consistent under the highest pressure in the country. He can make the most plays in the country when under pressure as an actual pocket pad. Because when Caleb Williams gets under pressure, he's got one thing. He rolls out, and he hucks the ball where the coverage is gone. When Bo Nix, he can run straight through the pocket. He can roll out if he needs to. He can move around. He can, th- he can stay in the pocket and throw quickly. To me, when I'm looking at that, I'm looking at this guy has a bunch of different facets. You can use him in a lot of different ways. He will fit in a couple of different systems, obviously not in a dual threat system, even though maybe he could, frankly. And to me, to pick him up, have him sit on the bench for a year and get him ready, that is absolutely a round one steal for me if I get him below 15. So that's where I think he is. I, frankly, as much as he's focused, he's having fun. He was a dark horse at the beginning of the year. This, I really do think that he is the best quarterback in the country in college right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll i never really turn down Caleb Williams or USC Slander. I am higher in Caleb Williams than you are, but I think the point is that if you take away the pro aspect of this, because like obviously the pros is a different game, it requires different traits. If you just say, hey, I want to win a game tomorrow in college football, I think Bo Nix is going maybe first overall, what, second or third at, wor- at worst. To your point, the, the best part about Bo Nix at Oregon has been the high floor, right? His worst game is just good. I think... The thing that surprised me is how much he raised his ceiling while keeping his floor at that same level. Because when I say high floor, usually that means conservative. It means just get the ball out quickly. And there are still a lot of aspects of Boat game that I like that, where he's a consistent quarterback, he gets the ball out quickly, he's not necessarily a super aggressive down-the-field passer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but the, 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 the floor has stayed the same. The ceiling has gone up. Also, he's running less than he did last year, which can mean a lot of things. I think in this context, it means he's a better passer. I think he doesn't need to run as much as he did last year, which has been really surprising, but really fun to watch because you still know he can run. And you know that when they need him to run, he can. And that's that's been really impressive to watch. I do We're, we're running out of time in this segment. I do want to talk about the wide receivers just a little bit. Uh, Troy Franklin went two for 147 and a touchdown, which is ridiculous. Tez Johnson went seven for 126 with two touchdowns, which is ridiculous. Um, I think the... I think that the skill position players of Oregon have improved throughout the year. And similar to Bo, where the narrative coming into the year, which was like a run-heavy team that's just going to not make mistakes, this has really transitioned into these wide receivers are really good. And that's without sacrificing the run game. Bucky, obviously, is still incredible. He went 19 for 118 and a touchdown, even though he had a banged-up ankle. Jordan James is still a really good short yardage back. The, this, this wide receiver group is really starting to get to a point where I, I'm thinking they're one of the better in the nation.
1: I, and I just really want – this is going to be a bit of controversial, but I do want to say it. I think that the injury to Noah Winnington was one of the best things to happen to this offense. Horrible because we lost him for the year. Horrible because he got injured. But from how much this offense has developed in its own style and been able – not that there was that big of a step up from Colorado to now, but just in the style and the overall way that they play and the play calling – the wide receiver group really started develop, developing after that point because t- to some point they were fairly balanced. They were, th- to, they were balanced to the point where they were actively calling run plays just to get those play counts between pass and run up. To me, the biggest thing about Noah Winnington getting injured is that, okay, not only are you you're allowing Jordan James to shine, but you're also you're throwing the ball more. Ever since Noah Whittington got injured, they've been throwing the ball more, and that's really allowed Franklin, who we already knew, Tez Johnson, who came in. T. Ferg, most dangerous tight end in the country when he's out open in space. Him and Brock Bowers, best two tight ends in the country. Nobody can change my mind about that. To me, this wide receiver core has just – Gary Bryant Ju- – you've got Gary Bryant Jr. supporting cast at that point. And to me, this wide receiver core is one of the best in the country, and they're overlooked a lot. And that's really a big shame. Like, you've got Troy Franklin. Tez Johnson is – these last two games have been monster games for him. But this core is one of the best in the country – Bo Nix, as much he is a great quarterback, he would not be able to do what he's been able to do from a scoring perspective without this wide receiver core, as good as they are. To me, it's a shame that they get overlooked. But every time they get overlooked in the media, that's one more touchdown that they're going to score on your favorite team the next game.
2: We we are wrapping up here, but really quickly, just want at least a shout out to the defense, Lulie. What was you, I mean, They sacked Williams three times. I think even though 27 is a, you know higher than the average, they're still top 15 scoring defense in the nation. I think that for all the hate we give on USC, they're still an incredibly talented offense. N- my initial takeaway was they did about as well as you could have expected given the circumstances. What did you see from the defense uh, on Saturday?
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was a really strong performance for the most part from the defense, um, given the quarterback um, playing on the other, the other side uh and yeah i think yeah i mean <laughs> i mean what else can the they the really pa- do against Caleb Williams yeah, to it, stop him it's so kind of the
2: best you could have expected right yeah. i mean the pass rush got there they he g- he escaped a few times but he's going to do that yeah. right they they contained you know Zachariah Branch pretty well that's a really dangerous weapon
0: mm-hmm.
2: it just felt like no one really really got open a lot it was it, w- it was a good i think it was a good but maybe not a plus performance from the defense
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree, especially, I mean, in that fourth quarter, maybe could have done a little bit more to to limit USC and probably 27 points is more than they'll want to allow. But for the most part, yeah, against Caleb Williams, good showing.
2: Yeah, the the two point conversion stop was great. Um, And obviously the onside onside recovery was the first they faced all season, but still still incredible for them. Um, well, we're going to wrap up talking Oregon football, and we're going to transition to the other sport that just started, uh, Oregon basketball, starting with a 2-0 and season, uh, beating Georgia, beating Montana in the home opener. They have Tennessee State coming up, but we wanted to talk about them. I will touch on the injuries briefly before going back to Pac-12 football. Thanks for listening here on QuacksMack.
0: K W V A.
2: More American Indians live in poverty than any other racial or ethnic group. Since 1989, the American Indian College Fund has helped thousands of young men and women begin a path out of poverty as students at tribal colleges. As more American Indians see a college education as a way out of poverty, full-time college enrollment continues to rise, along with the continued need for support. Help a student, help a tribe.
1: Learn more at tribalcollege.org. A public service message from the American Indian College Fund.
2: Formerly, the Tony Hawk Foundation is a skateboarding organization that helps communities build public skate parks for youth in
0: underserved communities. To date, nearly 600 recipients of the Skate Park Project grants have opened their skate parks. These parks receive more than
2: 6 million annual visits by youth who benefit from the active lifestyle and camaraderie the facilities promote. Learn more about the Skate Park Project by visiting www.skatepark.org.
1: Hey, this is Joey McMurray, broadcaster for the Oregon Sports Network and former KWVA Sports Director. But he's wearing Adidas pants. You can't do that. And you're listening to QuackSmack.
2: Welcome back, segment two. We ran long on segment one, uh, laying down some slander on Caleb Williams and talking Oregon football. We got to talk Oregon's men's basketball at least briefly. There's not a ton to talk about, but this, the season started. Uh, a couple victories. I think they looked good versus Georgia. They, they had jumped out to a big lead, and then obviously they, uh, you know, they, they let it up and then built the lead back. Versus Montana, it was it was a different story. Um, they were tight with Montana the whole way against. I would think a good, not great Montana team, but like it was a good Montana team. They were essentially tight the whole way, and then they just pulled away in those last five minutes. So the 14-point margin probably makes that win look a little better than it should. You know, it, it, was, it was a concerning game. However, it's early in the season, and there were injuries, um, which is also concerning. But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. They were down two starters for their home opener. But they pulled away late, and they got it. And so kind of my story, my, my headline, again, go back to the point of, like, I like talking headlines. What's the headline of this team I think they've looked better than I expected. I think they looked good. And I think that this is not the version of the team that we're going to see in January, February, March. I think that this is a very, very, very early version team with uh, some new faces and then some injuries. And they looked good against some lesser teams. And I think that's encouraging. If you're an Oregon fan, you should feel good about where they are. Maybe not great, but good. Gavin, kind of what, what's been your kind of headline from these first two games?
1: I mean, to me... This is probably the lowest expectations I've had for a basketball team in a good couple of seasons, frankly. And they're coming off – they went to the NIT last year. They've lost some talent from last year. I mean, honestly, to me, anything that they can put together is going to be a good season. So, um, I mean, anything that they can really put together is going to be a good season –
2: yeah, I mean, given in th- in this <laughs> circumstance, I think it's it's fine, given given kind of what you're working with, right? So, Lily, I'll, I'll ask you kind of the same question. What exactly is your takeaway from the first couple games of the season? Um, again, they're not full yet. They're still dealing with injuries, and, you know, you're probably not going to see against Montana. You know, wh- what's kind of in your storyline as you look at the season early on?
0: Yeah, the injuries uh, have been concerning uh, for the Ducks, but... I mean, they're still 2-0, and not against Pac-12 programs or anything like that. But, I mean, I've still put up a couple of good performances uh, to start the season, which is what the Ducks are going to want. Um, and guys have stepped up despite the injuries, yeah, which I think absolutely. is a hopeful thing.
2: Yeah, I, I think I mean the the name that jumped at to me was Rigsby, right? Brendan Rigsby yep. has played pr- pretty pretty well given the circumstances. Not again, we're early and you know a two game sample size. You're you're never gonna get too far here, but I think he's he's played pretty well. Um, he's done ten for eighteen on the year. He's five for seven from three, which which is nice. I mean, I think they just played nice. He's he scored twenty eight points uh, cumulatively. I mean, fourteen. Over over the first couple of games, and so I think that it's been nice to see some new faces step up. If if you're Oregon, I think that that's exactly what you want to see um, in in these early goings. I think again, the other name that jumped out to me was Nate Biddle, which I was I was excited for coming into the year. He's a fun player to watch. I feel like he's developed a little bit more of the, the three point shot as, as he's gone, um, and that's been fun to kind of watch him stretch the floor. I think that him alongside of, of Dante when they really get going will be really fun to kind of watch that duo develop those two players started together in Georgia and then Dante obviously didn't play for the, for the Montana game i, I just i have been encouraged by the new faces i kind of is kind of been my takeaway would you agree with that Lily?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rigsby, too. I'll agree with that one. I mean, exciting dunk that he, <laughs> that he yeah. had that was posted everywhere. The, the, the early the early
2: season highlight. You know, it's early yeah. in college basketball because they only have a couple highlights. So he, he's in every highlight package <laughs> across yeah. the nation. It's just Brennan Rigsby. You know, give it a month, they'll get some more highlights to cut into those. Um, the other injuries that we didn't really talk about, the injuries to the freshmen. Jackson mm-hmm. Shellstad dealing with what appears to be a relatively minor injury. So we've heard Infoli Dante should be coming back for the Tennessee State game. He is projected to play. Um, they do have the benefit of their early season schedules pretty light as far as spacing goes. They had two games in a week, had a week off. They're playing a game. Then they're, play- well, they're playing two games that weekend. So they have some spacing, which is nice. Um, so uh, Dan Allman, the coach, said we expect Infoli Dante to play versus Tennessee State. We do not expect Jackson Selstad to play in that game. He's dealing with, I think, it was like a, a calf injury during the exhibition game. He was he had a bandaged, and then he, he ended up exiting that one. Um, so it, that's been you know just something to to keep an eye on. Mookie Cook hasn't played yet. They're expected to be out. He's expected to be out until mid December, and then obviously there will be some sort of build up process for him. Um, but Kwame Evans, I think, the, the other big freshman. So it was those three freshmen. It was Shelstad, it was Cook, and it was Evans. Kwame Evans, the only one who's played so far, and I think it's been really fun to watch him play. It's been fun to watch him kind of develop slowly, kind of get into it. The shooting percentage isn't there yet, but I think that he'll get there, and I think that we've seen promising signs of what he could be in the cl- on the floor I, I guess if you put yourself in the mind of an Oregon fan, are you just terrified of these injuries, or do you think that this team will still find kind of a rhythm and, and push through it as they get along?
1: I mean, I'm li- and like I said earlier, are we expecting anything from this? Are, are we, we're we hoping yeah. for this team, but are we expecting anything? And I mean, the fact is, their early schedule, not the hardest in the world. They've got Michigan, Syracuse, and then they've got um, USC and UCLA early in um late December, early January into Washington. Every home game is going to be fun. Yeah. To me, I'm not really concerned about these injuries as much as, yeah, they're going to hurt. Yeah. They're always going to hurt. If they, by the time we get to January, we can reevaluate as to where we are with these injuries. Right now, early games, I'm not expecting a lot of close games here down the stretch early. So am I concerned? Not really. Honestly, I'm excited to see what they can do later in the schedule. Conference games always matter more. To me, they don't have that hard of a early schedule. Sk- sure, that Alabama or Ohio State game for the Emerald Coast Classic, that's going to be a pretty painful if they don't have people back. But yeah. to me, they come out with four losses, so what?
2: That That's fair. Their, their non-conference <laughs> slate is 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 pretty light. So they ra- the, the rest of their November, they go November 17th, they got Tennessee State, Florida A&M, and then they go to Emerald Coast Classic. That's Santa Clara and Alabama, Ohio State. Um, and then their December slate is Michigan UTEP. Cal Baptist, Syracuse, Kent State, before they jump to Pac-12 play. And we are all very aware of how, how good the Pac-12 can be at basketball. I think that there's some really good, talented teams, USC, UCLA, um, and uh, Arizona. Jeez, couldn't think of it. Arizona as well. Um, I, I, I will beg you with tears in my eyes, please go to the Michigan game. I, I work with the marketing team, and we're working really hard on that. You should go to that. They have some really cool throwback stuff. They're doing a Nike t-shirt giveaway um, to everyone in attendance. It's really cool. You should go to that game. That's going to be a really fun one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I to your point, I think that I'm not entirely sure how much you can take away from this team unless it's in extremes. I think they're going to be fine the rest of the non-conference slate, and then we'll probably, like you said, reevaluate in January. Lily, do you think we kind of have to wait until conference play really kicks in to truly know who this team is?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think as long as they keep just going during the non-conference slate uh, and then, yeah, reevaluate in Pac-12, I think, I mean – Dante, like you said, hopefully get him back soon. He'll, I mean, Dante is kind of the big player on this team. Had a really big first game against Georgia. Uh, Need him to stay healthy this season. And then, really excited to see the freshmen, uh, the other freshmen, uh, also get on the court. I think, Uh, Shellstat, and just kind of seeing what that point guard position looks like. Uh, I think there's going to be several different guys with that will have the ball in their hands this season. Uh, that they'll kind of move it around, but I think they, th- I think this is an interesting group. But like you mentioned, the Pac-12 is not an easy conference for men's basketball. So yeah, just keep treading along until Pac-12 season get everyone back and healthy and everyone that's on the court stays healthy. And then I think we'll see. It'll be interesting.
2: Absolutely. We're going to take one more break here in VA. When we come back, we're going to do our our usual Monday wrap up. We're going to kind of jump around the Pac-12. We're going to talk some Utah, Washington. We'll talk some Arizona State, UCLA, my touch in Oregon State, and then kind of wrap up talking about the college football playoff rankings, which should come out tomorrow, edition number three for them We'll take one more break here on KWVA 88.1 FM.
0: KWVA. 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 Would your
2: business
1: survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency
2: Students, when I call the reason for your absences throughout the years, please exit the auditorium without your high school diploma. (coughs) Too tired? Family trip? Sick day? Starting the holidays early.
0: Starting in the sixth grade, students
2: who miss 18 days or more of school in a year for any reason will fall behind and risk not graduating high school. How many days of school has your child missed this year? Absences add up. Keep track at boostattendance.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ed Council.
0: Neil Everett from SportsCenter. When I'm in Eugene, I listen to quack smack. And you better, too. KWVA, Eugene, 88.1 FM. Go, Ducks, quack!
2: Welcome back. Just 17 minutes left to go in our Monday edition of Quack Smack. Levi Berktholdt, Gavin Carpenter, Lily Crane. Just uh, cranking out hot takes here on football. Now it's time to talk Pac-12 football. We've talked enough Oregon sports. We got touched around the Pac-12. And so I wanted to start with, with Utah-Washington. So Washington wins 35-28. to They advance to 10-0 and for, I think, just the second time in school history, which is pretty cool for them. They're ranked fifth in the AP poll, and we would expect them to remain fifth in the college football playoff poll, going against the Utes as the third uh, the third loss of the season for the Utes as they drop one. Um the main thing most people will remember is that Washington pulled the reverse Kaelin Clay. They dropped the ball off an interception at the, not the one, but the two-yard line, which is a real power move there. Uh, Utah recovers at the two, and then uh, good teams recover from mistakes, right? Well, Washington gets a safety in the next play. So this game could have been a bigger margin, and it wasn't. It was a relatively pedestrian game for Michael Penix. He only threw for the 332 yards and two touchdowns, which I think is more of a credit to how good he's been. Uh, that, that's a kind of – it's like, oh, geez, what happened to him? Um, but I think that Utah's a good team, and good teams find pay to win, and so Washington beat a good Utah team, and they advanced. Um, I think the weirdest thing about Washington is they've, they've kind of recovered because if you remember after that win against Oregon, that season-defining win at home versus number 8 Oregon at the time – they threw up just stinkers, right? They win 15-7 to against Arizona State. That came without an offensive touchdown. They had a pick-six there. They sneak by Stanford 42-33. to That game was way closer than that margin. They scored a last-second touchdown. Stanford had a fourth-and-one with a dropped pass with a chance to tie, like all sorts of craziness. They then sneak by USC 52-42. Obviously, 52 is a lot of points to put up. 42 is a lot of points to give up. It does seem like they have stabilized a little bit which is good for them. But I still just don't think we've seen that version of Washington that we saw that day in Seattle. Gavin, I mean, I-, I see you shaking your head. It just feels like they haven't quite been right since that game, and
1: I don't know why. The offense hasn't been right since that game. It's This is really – since that game, Washington has not been able to put together a complete game. Either the offense balls out, like we saw against USC, 52 points. Not that that's particularly hard against USC, but <laughs> 52 points is still 52 points. Yeah. And, or you're seeing this game, defense played well this game. To me, against Utah, this game, that much as we talk, oh, 332 yards pedestrian numbers for Penix, really. Um, the defense made the difference here in this game to me. And I feel like they can – the defense makes the game or the offense makes the game, and the other side of the, of the team does not play well. They have not yet figured out a way since Oregon to put both the best Washington defense and the best Washington offense together on the same field for the same game. And when that happens, that's kind of scary. However, I'm not – we'll see. Oregon State's their last big chance to actually manage to do that. We'll see if they can, but I, if I'm a Washington fan – which I'm not, but if I were and I know that I'm probably going to the Pac-12 championship game and I know what we had to deal with, frankly, Oregon outplayed them for the majority of that second half and had the win fall away from their grasp. And that was with both the best Washington offense and the best Washington defense there. They could have won that game. They can win that game, but if they can't put it together, Before then, they're not going to put it together on the day of. So to me, if I'm a Washington fan, I am concerned that this team cannot put both of those aspects of the game together.
2: Lily, for me, Washington gives up the vibe of the kid who just had crammed the day before. And he's already pretty smart, but he also studied like kind of a lot, but kind of not really enough. It's they're, For me, they're very much in the category of they could win any game and they can also lose any game. And that's like the worst place for a college football fan <laughs> is when you know your team could beat anyone in the nation, but you're also kind of confident they could probably lose anyone in the nation. I guess if you you imagine yourself as a Husky fan, Lily, what's your level of confidence for this team? Because on one hand, if you're a pro Washington guy, you're saying, hey, they're 10-0. They're fifth in the nation. Like, what are we complaining about? On the other hand, you're saying they could have slashed, should have lost to Arizona State, Stanford. They had a nail-biter versus uh, USC that they were able to kind of control down the stretch. And then even in this game, I mean it comes down to the wire there you, Utah had the ball with a chance to tie late, just couldn't pull it away. Where do you stand? Like how confident would you be if you're a Washington fan?
0: Well, I'm not a Washington <laughs> fan and I'm not very confident but I don't if I feel like if I was a Husky, I would feeling I would be f- I feel like I would be feeling optimistic, but I would be kind of forcing that. Yeah. Know? It, it kind of reminds me of You would constantly
2: be reminding people you're ten and 0.
0: Yeah. It it kind of reminds me of Oregon teams in the past that have done really well uh, at the end of the season and then, you know, had a late season loss or something that I was like where it's like you know that not playing the best, but the record still says you're undefeated. You'll make the the college football playoffs as long as you keep winning but you just have kind of this eerie feeling that's kind of where I stand on it is they're 10 and 0 and they could go what 13 and 0 and make it but I don't it doesn't it doesn't feel that way right now
2: I, I get that. And so I was going to talk about this later, but I kind of want to talk about it now. It feels like we're—so I, I come from an Oregon State family. I have four older brothers went to Oregon State. I was a huge Oregon State fan as a kid. My point is I'm really plugged in with Oregon State football. And so if you have not been following Oregon State football, they're ranked 10th in the AP poll. Um, and they are 8-2, and two, which you're like, oh, typical, right? Well, they lost a nail-biter to Washington State back when Washington was good. And then they lost an absolute head-scratcher Pac-12-after-dark matchup to Arizona that involved some horrific coaching, you know, field fake field goals, all the normal Pac-12-after-dark vibes. My point is they were a really good 8-2 and two team. Um, I think they're still the top-ranked two-loss team in the nation right now. So they play against Washington this week in Corvallis. The advanced analytics gave Washington a slight edge, like a 52.5% chance to win. The odds have been swinging. We were talking about pre-game, Gavin, or pre-show. Washington went from a two-point favorite to like a one-point dog. It's a really tight matchup. My question to Oregon fans and to you guys is, do you, as an Oregon fan, want Washington to win or want Oregon State to win? And like, let me walk through this with you guys. We are heading towards a crash course where it's all about resumes, right? If Oregon wins out, big if, let's just imagine they win out, they win the Pac-12, they're a one lost champion. They're competing against what we'd assume to be an undefeated Florida State an undefeated winner of Ohio State, Michigan, whoever that is, the one-loss loser, probably, a one-loss Alabama if they win the SEC championship game, a Georgia team that either wins the SEC or loses to one-loss Alabama, a one-loss Texas team. I just listed six teams, and there's four spots, right? My point is, resumes are going to really matter in this ranking, in the final rankings of the season. On one hand, you would want a great Oregon State team, because Oregon plays them the last week of the season. On the other hand, you want your loss to look as good as possible, and you're going to replay Washington. So you almost want Washington to go undefeated. So my gut tells me we want Washington to win. If you're an Oregon fan, you say, we want Washington to win because Oregon wants their loss to look good. They want Oregon State's going to be ranked, so they're going to have that win at the end of the season if Oregon wins. And then you would be going against an undefeated Washington team if you're Oregon in the Packers' championship game and what you would assume to be winner goes to the playoff. So, Gavin, I'll start with you. If you're an Oregon fan, or I asked the question this way. Washington wins, Oregon State wins. Which result gives Oregon the best chance of going to the playoff, assuming they go undefeated?
1: To me, it's Washington. I think I agree, I agree with you on that 100%. I feel like if we're looking at resumes, I feel like to play Washington in the conference championship game as an undefeated team, the, we were the only people who beat the, who almost beat them at their best. Nobody else has come close to them when they're playing their best football except for us. Then you look at Oregon and you go, okay. They avenge their they avenge their one loss. That's the one thing that no other team in the country would have been able to do by that point. Nobody is able to event. maybe maybe Texas, if Texas Oklahoma Big 12 championship, I don't know how I'm not 100% up to date in the Big 12 standings out it's know. chaos. It's yeah. just chaos. We so I don't I that. don't 100% know who, if Oklahoma is still a likely team to make it to that championship game. Texas could, and they do still have that strong win against Alabama. To me, a one-loss Pac-12 champion in Oregon, especially if they do it against Washington, not so much. If they do it against an undefeated Washington, I find it hard to believe that the committee is going to rank a one-loss Michigan or a one-loss Ohio— maybe a one-loss Ohio State, but definitely if Michigan loses to Ohio State and Oregon wins out against an undefeated Washington, Oregon is in. To me, Oregon probably wins out either way, wins out is probably in. To guarantee that, you'd need a Florida State loss. But right now, most likely, Oregon is in either way. But I think the resume, you almost, almost, because there's nothing ever, nothing's ever sure in rankings, but you almost make it a certainty if you beat Washington as an undefeated Washington. In a neutral site, especially because this is the other thing. We're playing Oregon State at home. Austin Stadium has been allowed this year. It's been packed. It has been a very difficult environment for anybody to play in. Frankly, USC's nine point game, which really wasn't that close for the majority of the game, is, I think, the closest game that's been played in Austin this year. Austin's been incredibly difficult for anybody to come into. So, Oregon State losing in Austin after beating Washington means a lot less then us almost snatching a game on the road at Husky Stadium, another one of the most difficult places to play in the country, then going into a neutral site and beating them as an undefeated team. From a resume perspective, I don't see any way that you could justify Oregon State being a better resume win than beating a one-loss Washington making them two-loss to the Pac-12 championship, especially when resumes are really going to matter, when you have to nitpick between Texas, when you have to nitpick between a one-loss Ohio State, one-loss Michigan for that fourth spot. Because I really – unless Florida State – Florida State could lose. It's going to be – I would find it hard to believe that Florida State –
2: The only chance would be losing to Louisville in the ACC championship Yeah. That would be the only chance. Which
1: then punts the ACC straight out of the playoff. Yeah. And it's possible. Louisville's played well. No, I don't think that well. I think Florida State's another one of those teams where they could beat any – they can beat most teams. They could lose to literally any team in the country. They could lose to Tulsa right now if they really wanted to. So – Tulsa's
2: m- catching strays over here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> to me, I think that the best way to get the best way to ninety five, ninety eight percent chance Oregon gets into that playoff is by beating an undefeated Washington in a neutral site.
2: Lily, what's your take on that?
0: Just in um, do, do,
2: if you're if you're Oregon, do, are you rooting for Washington? or you do? Would you rather have Washington finish the table the season undefeated, or do you want like a top to Oregon State opponent? Because again, we're thinking Oregon State's going to land at number ten. A loss would drop them down a couple spots. A win would catapult them up, right? So it's basically, do you want your Oregon State to win win to look good, or do you want your Washington loss and what you would hope to be a future win to look good? You know, it's a weird mix.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with you guys. I think probably Oregon fans should want Washington to win that matchup against Oregon State. I think... I think if the Ducks are to beat Oregon State, I think it'll still look good regardless, given the fact that they lost last year. And then also that this is just about as good of a, an Oregon State team as we've seen in probably past decade, m- maybe even. Uh, so I think that win, if they're d- hypothetical win, would still look good regardless. But the Washington, yeah, it would make the Washington loss look better and then yeah we say a loss last game of the season pac 12 championships is a lot worse than a middle of the season loss to the same team that you beat yeah recency bias is, is yeah.
2: way underrated the other thing that people think underrate is the playoff ranking just starts with their last week's ranking and puts it up and this is what changes the fact that oregon is still above alabama and texas who i think are the two biggest contenders to jump them is Huge because now every week the playoff committee has to play that game of like, okay, how can I justify this team jumping Oregon? And if Oregon continues to win, the stop one is going to be key. They got to beat up on a bad Arizona, sti- Arizona State team. But even if Oregon State loses this game versus Washington, they're still going to be top 15. They probably drop a couple spots unless they get absolutely humiliated, which I don't think they're going to do. My point is, I think Oregon fans want Washington to win because you're going to finish the season with a win versus a top 15 Oregon State team, a rivalry game and then you're going to go to Vegas and hypothetically be playing against a top-five undefeated Washington team, keeping in mind that Ohio State, Michigan still have to play, so they're going to drop down slots, which means Washington will be a top-four team. It's I, the, the longer this goes, the Oregon fan inside of me gets more nervous about Oregon being jumped, but in my heart of hearts, I still think like they went out their in and it's just like the, the resume looks good. It doesn't look as good as it used to because Colorado's falling off a cliff and Washington State can't figure out how to win football games and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I think a one loss Pac 12 champion's in. And I think it's, it's scary because you're looking at what if Alabama wins out and it's a one loss Georgia? What if, you know, what if Florida State doesn't lose? What if it's a one loss Texas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I think, the, the, I think Oregon has, ris- has rightfully gotten
1: some respect on their name. And to me, the thing about bama is that bama can jump us with a win over georgia it'd be tight they can jump us with a win over georgia it it would be one of those weird things where it's like okay well we just dropped a top four undefeated team they just dropped a top four undefeated team okay well how do you measure that texas cannot texas does not have i don't think texas has a even in a big 12 championship scenario which i think they've clinched at this point um They do not have a team that is better than either Oregon State or Washington left on their schedule, including a championship game. To me, there is no game that Texas can play that jumps an Oregon win over either of those two teams. I'm not concerned about them. A lot of people say that they should be ranked over Oregon, but also they're not. And the committee would then have to justify something that Texas did that was so— Emphatically wonderful that they would jump this Oregon team that the community's, frankly been very high on. So, to me, the only thing I'm concerned, the only thing I'm concerned about from below is Bama hopping by beating Georgia. So realistically, there's only th- three things that an Oregon fan really needs to root for. They want Washington to beat Oregon State. They need to win out. They need to beat Washington. Realistically, and they have to four things because they have to hope that Bama doesn't beat Georgia. And that's about it. That should guarantee them a spot in. Might be four, and they might have to play a very strong Georgia team or a very strong Ohio State team early, but you never know.
2: Right now, Oklahoma State has the inside track to face Texas in the Big 12 Championship game. Oklahoma State ranked 24th in the nation. So, to your point, it's going to be really hard for Texas to look for that statement win as they go down the stretch, while Oregon has the inside track on a uh, couple big statement wins uh, going down the stretch here. Well... That's why this sport is beautiful. That's why we love this sport, because we're going to watch it down to the very last game to see who's into the college football playoff. Big thank you to all those who listened. And thank you to Lily Crane, Gavin Carpenter. My name is Levi Burke. The old, thank you for listening. Make sure you tune in tomorrow at 6 p.m. for another edition of QuackSmack. Stick around for your normally scheduled DJ here on KWBA 88.1 FM.
1: The Quack Smack on KWVA. If you miss any portion of the show or just want to listen again, you can find the full show recordings online at KWVARadio.org. Plus, we're on Twitter at KWVA Sports. Join us again for our next episode tomorrow at 6 p.m., right here on KWVA Eugene 88.1 FM.